Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I am here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Stephen. And we're going to be talking about the 1963 film, Eight and a Half, directed by Federico Fellini. But before we go on, let's hear from everyone about what movies they've watched since the last time we recorded. Stephen, how about you? I haven't watched actually a whole lot of movies since the last time we recorded. I did watch four seasons of Battlestar Galactica, though. Nice. Nice. But I I managed to see at least two movies. Um, One of them was The Suicide Squad, which I saw on HBO Max, which I did enjoy. It was a little too violent for my taste, but it was still entertaining. And I saw Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, and I saw that in the theater. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a fun movie. It was was much more fun than I expected. Was that your first movie back in the theater? No, my first movie back in the theater was The Fast Nine with Laura. Oh, right. Of course. (laughs) How could you forget? (laughs) Alicia, how about you? I think the only movie that I've watched in the last month or so was Lost Highway, David Lynch's Lost Highway, which... It still holds up and is still sufficiently creepy. And it was kind of interesting because it's at least the first part of it is about like these people being sort of surveilled in their home without them knowing about it. And this was like right before, like, I guess it was really like a decade before, like smartphones and mm-hmm. cameras in your phone and everything. So it was like now it's just kind of I just assume I'm being surveilled at all times on some level. <laughs> So it's interesting to see like how creepy it really is when when you don't know that it's happening. Do you cover the little camera thing on your computer when you're not using it? I don't. No, I just I'm like, you know what? I'm uh, (laughs) the the NSA is probably listening to everything I say on my my phone is listening to everything that I say. Google knows everything about me. Like it's fine. (laughs) I'm not doing anything. That's why I never apply for a job at Google. Right. So they just pull up your search history. They're yeah. like, yeah, we're not hiring you. Oh my God. What yeah. if that is part yeah. of the interview process? Yeah. <laughs> it probably is. Hey, I say live your truth, you right. know. <laughs> I, I own it. I'm just not going to, they won't hire me. Laura, what about you? What movie have you been watching? I watched um, Cruella, which was really enjoyable, but I keep thinking about the gluttony of music that they used of that film and, and just, how much money they must have spent on all of those seventies, you know, hits. Mm. And there was nothing that was sort of seventies like, when there was no atmospheric stuff, it was all just one banger after the next. <laughs> and it, and it was, it took you out of the film. Really. Mm, yeah. it, was, it was, it was like, um, it was almost like a sin, you know, we all have, there's always like, you know, Scorsese will use that same Rolling Stones riff. And Wes Anderson is a music hog. You know, these are just their facts. Like these are, Mm -hmm. but this was just something next level, totally just just devoured the 70s music scene. And then um, I watched Val, uh, the documentary about that Val Kilmer put together with his Mm. footage. And that was heartbreaking. And there was, um, and very, very well done sentimental but fuck it you know he deserves it there was a think piece that came out somewhere some i don't know guardian medium or daily something and um about how val kilmer got off easy in the documentary because he was such a you know difficult um problematic actor in in the 90s and aughts and you watch this and you're like no no he didn't 
he's not getting off easy. He's fucking, he lost his voice. He's mm. suffering from cancer. <laughs> you know, he's, um, so that was interesting. But one thing I loved about the film was just, you can, his love for his kids was just so palpable and, and there and heartfelt that it, it was really nice to see. Nice. Uh, Mia, how about you? So, um, not a movie, but I watched White Lotus, which I thought was super boring and overrated, and I don't get all the hype about it. Um, and then I rewatched Titanic, which was really delightful. Wow. <laughs> wow. When we when we drove back from Florida to Texas, we listened to a lot of movie podcasts on the way and the last one we listened to is about titanic so then as soon as we got home and like unpacked and everything we watched titanic and honestly it was so much better than i remembered it (laughs) jeremiah didn't agree you liked it the dialogue and leo's acting were problematic for you but besides that you liked it i mean you know it's cheesy but like i don't know to me I was like such a Leo stan. I mean, still am. But like when I was like 12 and this came out, I was obsessed. So it was fun, like nostalgia. But also it was just like, oh, yeah, wow. This is like a really impressive movie technically and stuff, too. So it and- definitely fulfills that like spectacle part yeah. of it. Like it, I don't yeah. think there's a better. I don't think there's a more like spectacular, like beautiful movie that I can think of yeah. that like awed me as much as Titanic. Yeah. Did. And like Kate Winslet is just like such a dream the whole time. And mm-hmm. it's just, you know, of course, like there's like the tension the whole time of like, okay, you know, it's going to happen. You're waiting for it. And then just the frantic rush to get off the boat and Billy Zane is just such a good villain. And yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. My favorite thing is how Bill Paxton is got the highlighted tips yes and the one earring yeah i i didn't enjoy it as much as mia did um yeah i I, I don't hate it i I, I (laughs) think that there's hate's a word that hey i'm good with hate i think there's a lot in the movie that's impressive and i i think if i saw it on a big screen again it would be more enjoyable because i i think that this is a movie that if you don't see it on a big screen, it's like kind of what are you doing? That's my yes. opinion about it. Well, that's what I said yeah. when we were. I was like, oh, this would be something I would love to go see at yeah. like a summer movie revival thing. And you were like, I know. our well, TV is better to watch. No, it no, on. no, no. <laughs> I said that I'd had an experience with Gladiator where I thought that when I rewatched Gladiator a couple years ago for another podcast, um, I thought that a lot of the special effects held up better on a, di- a digital. TV than they would have otherwise. Like stuff looked better on my TV than I remembered it looking on the big screen because some of that it's early like- CGI was just sort of like. Bleh. I <laughs> also watched the Suicide Squad since the last time we recorded. I thought it was pretty fun. It's very violent, um, but mostly fun. Um, I I was curious about did the writing process for that go just find and replace for Deadshot to Bloodsport. Because it's just like obviously written for Will Smith and his character from that first movie. And then they were like, yeah, let's get Idris Elba in here instead. Um, And then we watched CODA, which stands for Child of Deaf Adults. That's on Apple Plus or whatever their service is called. And it's a pretty solid indie movie. Um, It was okay. Yeah, it's not like the best movie It was interesting. Like it was, I was like, oh, and a lot of stuff I've just never thought about before. Not as super familiar with the deaf community, but 
the movie itself wasn't like amazing. But I guess they paid what, 25, 16 million dollars for it at Sundance? Wow. Yeah, so. it's oh. like the yeah. most ever paid for a movie at Sundance, I think. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think just it, it hits a lot of standard indie drama beats, but I think it does it particularly well. So it's, it's again, not the greatest movie ever made, but it's solid and worth watching, I, th- I thought. And then we rewatched Field of Dreams, which I'm a big fan of that movie. Um, it's cheesy, but I'm also just sort of like in awe of how, like, how the hell does that concept work as a movie? Because it's kind of nuts, but it does work. And it's a weird movie. Um, Unforgiven, uh, which is Chef's Kiss. Um, and then I, I rewatched this morning, Do the Right Thing with the commentary on Criter- Criterion Channel. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, for what we're doing, I think that that's a movie that should be in the conversation for the sight and sound poll as something that is more recent than Raging Bull. Um, yeah. Definitely more resonant than some of the stuff we've watched. So yeah. Far. Yeah. That's a movie that just, I think it's better and better with age. Um, but anyway. For those who may not have listened to this show before, this is a podcast where the five of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. The next poll will be out in 2022, so we're basically using that as our prompt to watch some classic movies ahead of it. And again, this time we're talking about eight and a half, but before we get into the history and background of the movie, what did each of us know about it going into this viewing, who had seen it before? And if not, what were you expecting, if anything? And since this one was my pick, I'll start us off and I'll explain why I chose it. Um, basically, I saw this movie back in high school and I don't think I'd seen it all the way through since. I'd seen plenty of clips of it, especially in college. And uh, I remembered really liking it a lot and being kind of enamored of it when I saw it in high school because it was just sort of like a movie that did stuff that I hadn't really seen in movies before. And I was just sort of like, wow, I didn't know you could do this. This is cool. Um, so that's that was why I picked it. I just hadn't seen it in so long and was curious about seeing it again and seeing how it held up, which we will get to. Uh, Steven, what was your relationship with this movie? I've had no relationship with this movie. I hadn't seen it. Um, I'd only heard about it being a Fellini film and it was really well regarded. Um, so I walked into this completely blind and I wished I had actually read a little bit more about it before we actually watched it and, and studied more about it. I think that would have affected how I, I looked at it. Okay. And Mia? I have the exact same uh, setup and feeling as Steven. I didn't know anything about it other than it was Fellini and Italian. And I was also going to say, I think my viewing would have been helped by reading a little bit about it before going into it. I like going in cold just so I don't have like preconceptions and stuff usually. But I think for the more surreal films, I think it's good to have some sort of grounding, at least for how my brain works. So mm-hmm. Agreed. There you go. Um, and Laura? I've seen it a few times before this, and it's just, I've always liked it and think it's it's a cool film. <laughs> and uh, so I just was looking forward to watching it again. Okay. And Alicia, how about you? Uh, yeah, I'd seen it once before, and I also remembered really liking it. Um, I was, I'm kind of wondering now if I was confusing it with La Dolce Vita. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd seen it once before and remembered liking it. <laughs> okay. 
so as I've often done on the show, I'm going to read from an entry in the Ultimate Encyclopedia of the Movies, which I got when I was in high school and first getting into movies. It's probably what prompted me to watch this movie in high school, actually. Uh, as always, the parts that may be more subjective aren't from me personally, but perhaps we can delve into those things as we get into our group discussion. The title comes from Fellini's calculation that his six feature films, plus his co-direction of Variety Lights and contribution of two episodes to anthology movies, totaled seven and a half films, and that this semi-autobiographical work was therefore number eight and a half. Marcello Mastroianni plays the Fellini figure, a director suffering from creative block in the preparation of his next movie. Fellini himself described this Best Foreign Film Oscar winner as, quote, the story of a film director who is trying to pull together the pieces of his life and make sense of them. And it is certainly something in the nature of confession combined with self-analysis as Mastroianni tries to come to terms with the women of his world, including his wife, his mistress, and his star, while balancing the demands of his work, personified by his producer, his intellectually pretentious writer, and a host of other attendant sprites. This he does in a complicated, multi-layered structure through a mixture of surreal dreams about his past and fantasies of his desires. The result is something of a mixed bag, which at times is reduced to an irritating male menopausal comedy of irresolution touched with La Dolce Vita. It is, however, rich in the bizarre and powerful imagery that is a Fellini hallmark, such as the La Saragina Rumba for the benefit of her sexually curious small boy followers and the grotesque procession of cure seekers at the spa. The film also gives a unique insight into the complex and lateral process of creativity as perceived by a great cinematic creative talent. Again, that was an entry in the ultimate encyclopedia of the movies. Eight and a Half was more or less Fellini's feature film follow-up to 1960's La Dolce Vita, with a segment for an anthology film in between. La Dolce Vita had been something of an international sensation when it came out, so perhaps the pressure of following that up helped lead him to producing a film about the pressure on a director to make his next movie. It was released in February 1963 to much acclaim, especially from European critics, drawing comparisons to James Joyce's Ulysses and Orson Welles's Citizen Kane along the way. It opened in the United States in June of that year, where it also earned mostly praise, but for a few critics, Pauline Kael among them, and it ended up winning two Academy Awards for Best Foreign Film and Best Costume Design for Black and White. It was also nominated for Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Art Direction. The big winner of the Academy Awards that year, though, was Tom Jones, starring Albert Finney and directed by Tony Richardson. That film was also the fourth highest grossing movie in North America in 1963, behind Cleopatra, How the West Was Won, and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, in numbers one through three, respectively, just to give a sense of what was popular in the United States at the time. And as for our purposes, Eight and a Half was first on the Sight and Sound Critics Survey in 1972 ranked as the fourth greatest film of all time. It was then at number five in 1982, fell off the list in 1992, re-entered at number nine in 2002, and ended up at number 10 in 2012. Meanwhile, it's been on the director's survey each time they've had one so far, at number two in 1992, number three in 2002, and then at number four in 2012. Since this was my pick, I'll start us off with my thoughts on the film and whether it lived up to my memory of it. And to be honest, I did find it a bit tedious through long stretches of the film, mainly in terms of the story. I found it impressive visually and technically, though, um, pretty much throughout the whole thing. 
like the way that story was told was more interesting to me than a lot of the story itself, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I, I, I did, as I was watching it for long, those stretches, I would, I would question is, is this too self-indulgent and is it just kind of annoying? <laughs> Uh, but then there would be things that would happen that would sort of like save it for me for a little while. And then I, I was like constantly sort of on the fence. So I'm, I'm curious what everybody thought about it. Um, those who have seen it before and those who haven't. So Stephen, what about you? Did it live up to your expectations? You know, I expected to really love it just because it was a Fellini movie, but I just, it just wasn't, it didn't resonate for me at all. And it was funny when you read that part about it being a male menopausal comedy, it just, that's the way it felt. Like I was watching, like it was, uh, it was almost like it was so self-indulgent and it felt as if I, I wished I had watched other Fellini movies first. So I could have gotten more into the mindset of who he was, because for me, I was just like watching this guy, like put his brain on the screen for, for two hours. And it, it was just like, it wasn't my thing. I mean, I enjoyed the performances a lot and I liked like the individual parts of the movie. Like I liked performances more than anything else. Like the scenes about him being a child or, you know, the dance scene that he did, um, on the beach. I really enjoyed that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, like, I just felt like we were in his head way too much and there wasn't much of a story for me to follow so much. I watched it twice and I fell asleep twice and I had to keep rewinding it to watch it. And I don't know if that was just because I was not in the mindset to listen or to kind of appreciate it, or it was just the story just wasn't there enough for me to really pull pull myself into it, mm -hmm. but I enjoyed looking at it. And also what was drawing to me, and I read later that he would put dialogue, he would put the dialogue in later after he had people speak it. So since I speak Italian a little bit, like I can still understanding, it was really jarring to me to look at people's mouths and it wasn't, they weren't really, they weren't really saying much because mm -hmm. he was going to put it in later. So for me, there was just a lot in this movie that I wasn't really I wasn't really fond of, but I'd like to hear other people's opinions to see if maybe I just need to see it a third time in order for me to really enjoy it. So right. that's the way I felt. I think that that technique is kind of was a thing in Italy, though. The the whole like, we'll, we'll shoot something, then we'll add the dialogue later, and it might not quite match what they were saying on set. It's It's a weird quirk of their cinema that I, that I think can be kind of weird, uh, if you're not kind of already enjoying the movie. So uh, I just wanted to say that before we moved on, but, um, Mia, I think Steven and I continue to have very similar <laughs> reactions to this movie. Um, I fell asleep three times in my viewing of it and had to keep starting again. Um, so I only watched it once and I definitely kind of felt like, oh, I, I wish I'd had the time to watch it again because I do think it's a movie that now, like, I think this is just me with surrealist films, like kind of watching through it once, I just get really frustrated. And with this one, I knew at least that it was surrealist going into it. So I was like, okay, don't have this be another mere experience where you're just trying to make sense of it, like just go with it. And it was definitely easier to digest than mirror and i think he did a better job than in mirror with the time um traveling like going back to childhood or going to you know something with his mistress or something like that i thought it was very impressive visually technically you know there was definitely scenes or shots that i was just like oh wow like that's so beautiful or that's so interesting and i can totally see why it's been such an influential movie in terms of doing things that hadn't been really done in filmmaking before but just overall, yeah, I felt like 
no sympathy for this main guy and just really annoyed with him. I really lost it in his harem scene. I was like, okay, sure. I get that this is like, you know, probably a lot of men's fantasy. That's fine. You know, interesting window into his brain. But then the fact that his wife in his harem fantasy is the one who is doing all of the cleaning and is literally scrubbing the floors and was like, oh, you're right. I should have realized this 20 years ago when we got married. Like I was just so appalled by like how he treated her, especially in that scene, even though I know it was imaginary, but still like I just can't imagine that being like an undercurrent of your marriage. So that was very frustrating for me. Um, but I also was like, I should watch this again, maybe like in a couple of years or something like that. And I haven't seen any other Fellini films. So I mm-hmm. would also like to see more of his filmmaking because obviously mm-hmm. I know he's this famous, you know, influential director. And I would like to get more into his work because there was enough there that kept me interested in it. I just think this movie isn't it probably wasn't the best like first Fellini film to watch. Yeah, I agree with you. I totally agree with you on that front. I wished I had watched maybe La Dolce Vita first and then seen this. I think it probably would have given me a different perspective. Yeah. And Laura? I think this film's fantastic, which is not a word I use often. Um, It is indulgent and, you know, just abysmal how he treats the women in his life and all of that stuff. But I think as a film, um, it's, it, it's just very successful in how it travels through time. It's not linear. There's no real plot. There's no, no protagonist. There's no arc. It's just, um, it's, it's a lot like mirror, but I think unlike mirror, it's just an extremely enjoyable film for me. I, um, with the, the constant movement of the camera and the, all of that going around and the sort of grotesque quality to all of uh, the people in it. Um, Visually, it was just, just really fascinating film. And there's also a lot of tender hearted moments um, where again, he isn't, he may be a success as a filmmaker, but he is also a failure in, as in in love and how to treat people. And I think all of that is just very raw and honest. And um, and it's just, it's a, it's a, and it's just, it takes you on a, a ride, like some kind of circus ride or something. Right. Just really enjoyed it. Fitting with the soundtrack. I did really <laughs> yeah, enjoy the Nina soundtrack. Rota. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alicia, what are your thoughts? I kind of agree with what you said. Um, I I found the story a little more tedious than I remembered it being. I do think that the movie asks some really interesting and like valid and important questions about like life and love and <laughs> that kind of thing. But um, but yeah, I, I did get a little bored during the movie. Um, I think it's a beautiful movie though like I love the imagery and mm. and I love like the way everybody everybody looks beautiful in it and I just think like it's it's gorgeous and it's fun and I also like I, the same as everyone else it sounds like I drew a lot of comparisons with Mirror when I was watching it and um 
it's so funny that like to me that Laura hated Mirror so much, but then really likes this one. But it is they are they do they are very different like stylistically, I guess. And like and I do think that this one comes out with like a much more sort of optimistic and like um, humorous view of life, mm-hmm. whereas Mirror can kind of falls on the like darker side of of that. So I, I, I get that. So I understand. But um, it was just funny to me when you were like, this is a great movie. And like, Amir, you were like, this movie was terrible. So self-indulgent. But I kind of feel like they're both pretty self-indulgent. But um, but this one is more fun. Yeah. Italians so. versus Russians. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Different. And also, like, I mean, one of them was coming from a very closed society and one of them mm-hmm. was coming from a very open society. So mm-hmm. I think it's really like easy if you're like a white straight rich like man living in like a a time of relative like peace and prosperity to like spend time making a movie as about what that's like this and that's asking these kind of like questions Mm -hmm. about like not anything super duper I mean important stuff like on a personal level, but not necessarily important stuff on like a societal or political level. Right. Yeah. It's much easier mm-hmm. to come away with like a life celebration <laughs> attitude, you know, <laughs> which he does say at the end. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but yeah, but I mean, I, I like it. It's not, it's, it's not like one of my all time favorites or anything, but, but I enjoyed it, although it was a little boring, but. So Laura, I'm curious on that, that mirror versus eight and a half question um what do you think it is that you like about this more than than mirror is it because like there are as we're all i think identifying there's surface level things that are similar about them in in terms of someone looking back at their life it has they're not linear they're fractured they're yeah not yeah memory. yeah um, it's, it's different think... timelines looking back at your life surrealist imagery but i do think it kind of stops there though what what they do with that is completely different but like what what is it about this movie that you like that that makes it different from a movie like Mirror that has some surface level similarities? Well, it, to me, I feel like this film is aware of itself in a sense that it's a film about making a film that in and of itself is sort of about making film. And it's, it's just very meta and even... It, I mean, I do think it touches on a lot of very serious issues, you know, with childhood and religion and, you know, parental relationship and things like that. But it never lacks style style in any moment. And um, I just kind of enjoy that. And it's so dedicated and just the black and white, you know, image, the the faces, the taking the cure and the smoking and the sauna, like all of that. It's just, um, it takes, I don't know, it just sucks, sucked me in. Whereas Mirror was just kind of, it kept going on and on. And um, it, it didn't have a cohesive style or, um, there wasn't any levity really to it right. at all. And this, there's there's a certain quality to, I think, and the Italian 
ness <laughs> um, where it, it's just a little bit ridiculous and but in a very pleasing way right. yeah I liked all the <clears throat> there'd be a lot of scenes where people were just wearing like almost these ridiculous costume things even at the very end at the press conference there's it doesn't even focus on them I think it's just a shot from the back as the camera's panning along and there's like these women in these really extravagant hats like one literally is like a star on her head and so I really liked all those little details where I was like oh this feels more like a dream in all these mm -hmm. ways, whereas Mir just felt like a nightmare, I guess. <laughs> like, what's mm -hmm. happening here? <clears throat> so I appreciated those little details, little moments. I also really liked the the smoking and the, uh, when he's like in there with the steam and taking the cure and everything. It was like, oh, so perfect. It's so Italian. <laughs> um, something else that I really liked about the film and the message was the, there would be all these scenes where you know, everyone's just coming at him and questioning him. And even people that seem to be in his inner group, you know, being like questioning his talent, questioning his future movies. And I was wondering kind of the whole time, is this stuff that people's actually are, are people actually saying these things, you know, especially the ones that are like the people who know him or is he just thinking this or projecting it or, you know, whatever. And you know, I'm not an artist, but I can only imagine how difficult it is to make art and put it out into the world and to believe in yourself and believe in your art so much um, to overcome those voices. Because like we all have them in our heads, even if it's just about like the most mundane things. So I thought they did a really good job of capturing that that fear and just that feeling of like wondering about that. Um, so I thought that was something really impressive in the movie. Alicia? I, I was just going to say about the like the whole framework of the movie that he's producing in, or that he's trying to get made in this is so crazy. Like mm -hmm. it's some kind of weird sci-fi yeah. movie. And yet the people that he's casting are like straight, um, straight up, like, I don't know what the word is, avatars or something for like the the people that are real in his life and he's casting them like directly on like how they look, how they walk, mm -hmm. the tone of their voice, like very real like people. Mm -hmm. And it's so weird because it's like, what is this movie supposed yeah. to be? I, I thought there was two movies. Like there's the, there's what he sold to people is this is what he's doing. And then mm -hmm. as he's trying to make it, he like can't get away from trying to sort this other thing out. And so somehow there's just like this massive disconnect where like yeah. the mafia dude, I guess, or like the financier is like, oh, I've built this huge rocket and is like all yeah. hung yeah. up on that. But it's like, that's not the movie. <laughs> that was my interpretation, at least. I, there was something I heard. I want to say it was like Siskel and Ebert or something years ago. I don't remember what movie they were talking about, but they, whoever it was, they made a point that almost always when you see a movie about making movies, the movie within the movie seems like it's going to suck. Like it's going to be, <laughs> like they yeah. always seem just like sure. a, a total disaster in the making even when it's a movie about like how oh everyone loves being part of a movie and like oh a movie set is like a family and all the crew is like having such a good time but you're sort of like what is this movie though that they're making it's terrible and that's not like what this <laughs> one is this one seems like 
everyone thinks it's going to be a disaster and it is going to be a disaster. But that's <laughs> something that just stuck with me and I, I found it to be true. Um, most times you see a movie about making movies, the movie seems like it's going to suck, um, mm-hmm. which I think is funny. Well, um, when you're making a movie, sometimes it does, I guess. So it's just yeah, like sure, sure. All, all the parts that you're putting together just seem like they're so nonsensical. And then, yeah. you know, it ends up being something. But when you're doing it, it's just like, what is yeah, this? So, yeah, totally. You know? Well, and then at the end, he does um, he does sort of get rid of all of that. He does sort of destroy that whole that whole framework and mm-hmm. decides that that's really not the type of movie that he should be making. So right. I'm not sure I agree that that, that would happen at the end of that film. But I, I, in terms of, I'm sorry. I just, no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. Um, I, I also think if the film is a commentary at every step of the way. It is take everything negative you guys said about the film. It The writer, the intellectual writer mm-hmm. says it during the making of it. Right. Um, throughout. So it's self-aware. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. And so I'm actually going to go ahead and ask my question. Wait, can I just say one thing about the writer real quick? Because I love when he's just like, like lifts his finger up when they're doing the test screenings. And then I'm assuming it's his imagination. People come and hang him. And that's just like the end of him. I just thought that was such a funny scene. And the whole time I was like, oh, my God, this guy's such an asshole. Like, why does he have him falling around? Why doesn't he just tell him to, like, get lost or whatever? And so I just really loved that. And I feel like that was another just like this perfect little moment of levity in this, like, pretty intense scene where you're like, I don't, to me, at least. And maybe this is just like me not whatever being slow or something. But like that was where it like really clicked that like, oh, so he's making a movie about all of these people and they're he's like literally trying to cast like this woman from his past and his mistress and his wife and it was just so intense for me in that part and then like you know his wife tells him that she's leaving so it was just like this perfect moment of comedy right. in the middle of all this intenseness right so so we're talking about how this movie is self-referential and like i said earlier in the episode um i i go back and forth throughout the movie of it seeming like, okay, this I'm not with it. And then something happens and it pulls me back in. And like, I, I think some of what you're describing is what seemed tedious to me in certain moments, but then it kind of saves itself later. And so basically that character, if it is an analog for Fellini, I don't think it makes Fellini look good as a person. Like, And I think that it's kind of a, a risky, perhaps brave thing of, for a filmmaker to do to put this analog of himself on screen that just looks so immature and ridiculous in a way. And so I'm curious what everybody thinks about the idea of maybe that um, courage to do that, maybe if that is what it is, uh, does that overcome the more like navel gazing and self-indulgent moments of the film? Because he's, he's really putting himself out there. To Laura's point earlier, like I think that the writer, I thought he was like a, critic but i guess he was like helping him write the movie i think he's a critic that he's he's uh brought on to help him write because he's yeah. been criticizing him so much that's yeah. that was what i thought it was yeah um i think that that character is like probably the most important like person in the movie because he does like he is commenting on the movie as it's happening and like pointing out the flaws as as you're coming upon them and and mm. so there is like this level of self-awareness I think that, um, 
I don't know that it's like super, I guess it probably feels like super brave to be putting yourself up there like that and um, opening yourself up in that way. But I don't know if, I don't know how brave it really is. Maybe I'm just looking at it from like a modern standpoint because like we put so much of our lives like out there in the world Mm. nowadays anyway. But I mean, I guess people can put up very curated images of themselves now. So it, it could still, you know, it is still. Right. Because it'll be considered courageous to do that, to be more honest. I don't think it's courageous just to put yourself out there. I think it's courageous to put yourself out there in a way that could make you look ridiculous. And I think that this portrayal of of a Fellini-esque character, um, like, I wouldn't want to be associated with uh, Mastroianni's character in this movie. I wouldn't want someone to think that that's how I am. Um, You know what I mean? So th- that's where I think the bravery comes in, not just like the fact that he's putting some an analog on screen. I feel like since he's had so much goodwill with the other movies that he's put out, like how brave is it really? I mean, he's also, it's in a movie. So like he could, uh, he could easily say like, oh, this was just like pieces of other people that I know or the way that it's kind of put on, it is sort of like, you know, he's an unreliable narrator to begin with. So I feel like you can look at something like that and feel like, oh yeah, he's he's putting it all out there. But is he? Is he also including other things that are just fantastical because it's a movie? So I feel like it is brave to some degree, but it's not super. It's not super brave, at least to my what I think. You know, I I think the human condition is to be ridiculous and self-involved and indulgent. And when you make anything, it's thrived by those kinds of things. And, you know, if I was going to make a movie about, you know, a short span of, of myself, I would, I would definitely choose Marcello Mastriani and um, how, and those glasses and just looking super cool the entire time. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I want to It's not a joke. He really does look. He's so fucking hot. Like, you know, it's just, he's ridiculous and gross and, you know, terrible and, and a complete cad, but, but also super compelling though. So awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Just so cool. I, I wondered because in the scene after the screen, or I guess in the middle of the screen test, when he and his wife are out in the hallway and she's saying to him, you know, you, you made, you're trying to do something honest, but it's all from your perspective. You're making us all do the things that you Mm -hmm. want us to do. You're show, I forget exactly what she says, but like, you know, basically like he's still the one making the movie, he's directing it. So it's still his perspective. And so when I read your question, I thought about that, like, is it really, or is that, is what she says there still the truth about this movie too? Yeah, I mean, what yeah. does Fellini's wife have to say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are seeing what you want see. He wants you to see, which really. I think is, you know, I think everyone's life. Like, I that was a really good point, Alicia. I think of like we all put our lives so much out there now, and you know, maybe when it was more the era of like live journal and stuff, maybe people and like more blogging. Maybe people were just more publishing. Like, here's my stream of thoughts online. Good day, yeah. bad day, whatever. But like. I certainly don't post bad stuff on Instagram <laughs> or at least not a lot. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's different. Like, and it's one thing I feel like the bad stuff I do share is like my frustration about like Texas politics or like my frustration about something else, but not necessarily like, wow, I'm still depressed about this thing that happened months ago. And I just, you know, no one cares. Like, right. It's like, and I don't want that out there, but it's, 
to be if I was going to make a movie that's what I would have to do you know what I mean so right Mm -hmm. I also think like like I don't know that when I'm 50 years ago or whenever this was that 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 men would say I don't want to be associated with a guy like this sure I think there's a lot of men and still in in this day and age there's a lot of men that are like this guy's cool and I totally identify with the way he his fantasy of what he could have you know as in a harem of women if he you know if he had his fantasy world I think there's plenty of men that would still want that right Mm-hmm. you know yeah they want to be babied when he's like literally wrapped in the sheet and they're like yeah. compounder on him. it's also really easy to pick apart the idea that Mastroianni is Fellini um and that every character in this movie is some analog from his l- actual life because even just mm-hmm. in real life his wife Julietta Messina uh was an actress that was in his movies and you know he he I mean maybe he's presenting facets of her in different characters or something but it's not a one-to-one thing he, that mm-hmm. he's like making a completely biographical um movie of, in a sense you know so mm-hmm. but other people's perspectives are going to filter into how you create your art anyway right so i'm curious like before this movie especially maybe for the people who hadn't seen a fellini movie before like i'm curious what people think of the term fellini-esque that's one of those terms that i feel has been thrown around so much and has kind of morphed maybe into other things beyond what it originally meant. Like what did people think that term meant? And does this seeing this movie kind of clarify it at all? Mia, you hadn't seen the movie before. What did that term mean to you, if anything? I mean, I don't know if I had like a super firm grasp of it, but I would say just surreal or surrealism and I think after watching this now, I would say like surreal, but cool, <laughs> you know, where like it's just it's this crazy world. Things happen. You can't sometimes stuff slides into imagination or the past or whatever, and you can't quite tell. But it's not just random things happening for randomness. There's like a definite arc to it. There's beats to it. And everyone just looks so cool while they're doing everything. Right. Right. And Stephen, how about you? Yeah, I would echo that. Um, I think I, I feel like I went to a Fellini theme party years ago, and everybody was wearing everybody was wearing black, and they were really cool glasses, and you know everybody sort of like stood around in a certain way. So I feel like it's more about how it's been shot, and you know the elements that are put in there. There's always something that's happening in the background, and also that it doesn't necessarily have to make sense mm-hmm. for you to get something out of it. I think that's also Fellini esque. From what I understand, right. I wonder if Michaela and her art could be considered Fellini esque. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, her whole I can aesthetic see it. is like, Lisa. yeah, very chic. Yeah. Right. Very chic. Well, yeah. For people who don't know who Michaela is, that's, a, <laughs> that's a, a friend of ours who is Italian and has a very uh, impressive and interesting uh, artistic style. She does illustrations and stuff like that. Um, so, Alicia and Laura, since since you had seen this movie before and perhaps seen other Fellini films, like what did the term Fellini-esque mean to you? I'm curious. I guess what I think of as Fellini-esque is just really like the sort of, yeah, the surreal imagery, like the dramatic or crazy music over like these really 
uh, either like humorous or just mm -hmm. uh, just straight up like weird scenes. Um, but I also think that there's like there is some like humor and joy in it as well. It's not just like being surreal and weird you know in a dark way it's being surreal and weird and kind of like a fun way right. <laughs> um so I like that and I I like his whole thing um yeah I just thought that this particular movie is a little bit like you said tedious but um but overall like I I enjoy Fellini's style so right. the term Fellini-esque to me I feel like only exists at the end um with the the bombastic parade with everything coming together and circling around and it all just you know taking over the memory the future the now like and mm -hmm. and and just then having a life of its own and that's the way I see that that term and, and and I um that's how I view it and I just I think it lends itself to I mean you know, anytime there's a stylized film about making a film, I could see why it gets used. Um, any, it's and, and I it's it's what I would want to challenge myself is to where I would use it to describe something else and see how it mm -hmm. would fit. And I just um, something that's coming to mind is the movie CQ. Um, uh, Roman Coppola directed in 2001 oh, okay. and it's it's also a film about making a film with sort of a sci-fi element and and it's very lot larger than life and with a lot of memory and characters and I think that film has a very strong Fellini-esque quality and um, that's where I would use it the term I mean I also feel like sometimes I live a very Fellini-esque life because I'm caring too much about putting my eyeliner on versus paying my bills, you know, things, ridiculous things, you know, I don't know. I wasn't sure what my answer to this would be before I asked the question, uh, but I, I thought that what Mia said gets, starts to get at it for me of it being surrealism mixed with a coolness. But I would also just add in like, there's, there's almost always some element of nostalgia or very often there is which I, I think also kind of further defines it um, is another example of something that I would call Fellini-esque, a very a more recent movie, uh, Pain and Glory by um, Pedro Almodovar. If anybody has seen that with Antonio Banderas, he should have won an Oscar for that movie. Um, but it, it has a similar vibe of, of coolness mixed with nostalgic, not quite surrealism, but, but it kind of manifests in that way. I think, and uh, I think there have been so many people who've chased like that Fellini-esque feeling in their movies, like Woody Allen definitely did. It's true, um, and, and, in sequences. Yeah, or whole movies. I, I I don't remember if I've actually seen Stardust Memories, and I'm not going to watch it now. <laughs> but um, such a bummer. But that one has been called like a complete like Fellini uh, rip. I think I've never um, seen that one actually, but I think El Moldovar yeah. is an excellent example. Of. Yeah, I think he's had plenty of stuff that that verges on Fellini-esque if it if it's not fully Fellini-esque. And and then one thing I wanted to bring up too is I, I feel like David Lynch kind of took on the mantle of that in a different way. Like I I feel like that he's a person who um, people refer to him with surrealism a lot and call it like Lynchian. 
And it's kind of become like one of those go-to words that people use to describe things. I don't think Fellini-esque and Lynchian are quite the same thing. I think there's like a uh, maybe a lack of nostalgia for in the Lynch I think stuff. That's exactly it, what the lack is. You, you hit the yeah. nail on the head there. And it's mm-hmm. like a, got a darker undercurrent to it usually. It's Tarkovsky um, in a way. Yeah, that might be yeah. true. Yeah. But but I feel like those are two of the directors who've become like adjectives for things over the years that sometimes there's an overlap, often there shouldn't be, but I think they and some people use them interchangeably when they shouldn't, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but uh, I don't know. I just thought it was worth asking about. I definitely thought about Lynch when I was watching this too. Like that's also a, a, um, a parallel that I drew, but I think you're right. It is really different, but, um, but yeah, there's something about like surrealism that gets, gets to me, works for me. Like every time it yeah. seems like no matter who's doing it, I, was actually, I had a couple. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to ask, uh, I was interested at the beginning of the show when you said that you watched, uh, lost highway. Um, yeah. I haven't seen that movie in probably 20 years, but like, is since you watched these kind of close together, is there anything about Lost Highway and that Lynchian vibe that you would say is kind of overlaps with Fellini? Well, yeah, I mean, not like I, I, I guess there's there's some party scenes in Lost Highway. It takes place in like Hollywood, and there's like a I think the um, I can't remember, but I, I guess the guy is a musician at the beginning and they're kind of like in this like Hollywood milieu and they're going to like Hollywood parties and there's this kind of like stylistic thing, but, but at the same time, there's this undercurrent, there's this very dark undercurrent. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously like there is a lot of like surreal and weird stuff happening, but it's very, very different. <laughs> it's just like really different. I don't, I'm not sure, I guess just like the surrealism, like using symbols and things like that. Right. Um, you know, that struck me as similar, but I don't think I, I don't think that like the overall tone is similar at all uh, between Lynch and Fellini. Okay. Anybody want to bring anything else up? Laura, um, I guess we had different interpretations of the ending of the movie. And I guess you could, I guess there, there are a couple different ways you could interpret it because some stuff happens there. So what is it, what is it that you think happens at at the end of the movie? Like what's your interpretation? Well, I'm, I know I could see why you think that he abandoned the whole concept of the spaceship, et cetera, and then just made this other movie. But to me, it all lent itself together. And I think he was just crippling anxiety and and fear. And then he just realized he was going to make the movie. And it it all just, as soon as he started, it just happened and it was going to happen. And every part of it was going to keep, you know, go be involved. I didn't, I don't think it changed. It just, something in him clicked. He got his mojo back and then he was ready to do it. That's totally different from what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought that he shoots himself under the table and then the rest is just a dream Mm. of everyone Mm -hmm. like dancing in a circle and being there. Cause I was like, this is not a thing not that like the not that the movie is reality the whole time obviously but mm-hmm. yeah I think that was just his illusion of escape um mm-hmm. yeah I think that was a fantasy not that that should be like your fantasy but I thought that was a fantasy because <laughs> that was his like fantasy of getting out of yeah. that moment mm-hmm. 
but um, what did anybody else, Stephen or Jeremiah, think? Um, I, I felt like he he did come to terms with you know his 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 past, and that's why everybody was up there, sort of like you know we can make this all without without us, and we're just all a part of you. And it's more of an equal thing rather than him projecting onto them. It's like everything is together for him. And after seeing everybody kind of dance their way out of it, he's like, okay, I think I'm ready to do a good job with this movie. That's what I thought. Yeah, I guess I am going to, I don't know if this is a cop out, but I don't know if it matters if he was, if he kept making the same movie. I think it was just more about his creative block disappeared. And that's all I really cared about. Like whether he kept doing this sci-fi thing is less important um, and seems almost beside the point as far as the movie is concerned, I I thought. But uh, so I didn't really think about whether he had completely abandoned it or not because I didn't think it was relevant fully. See, I thought he abandoned the whole, the the sci-fi concept Mm -hmm. and was going to try to just make something that was more like truthful and authentic and pretty Mm -hmm. kind of what we ended up seeing as eight and a half, you know, something that's like putting himself out there sort of warts and all Mm. and didn't really have that sci-fi angle anymore. From the screen tests to the images in the production office, it was all from the past. There was, it was never just, there there might've been a sci-fi element and a spaceship and some ridiculous thing there, but there was always going to be the beach scene and Saragina Mm -hmm. and um, those characters in the film. So Mm -hmm. I, I guess, yeah I mean I don't think he totally abandoned the the making of the making of the film I just think he like I in my mind I thought he decided to just change the just strip away the like the the sort of supernatural elements that he had that he had had it in in the beginning that was Mm -hmm. kind of what I thought but Mia, were you going to say I something? was just going to say, I don't know if anyone else read this, but I read something about they'd filmed an alternate ending that was going to be he and Louisa on a train. And then just as the train was about to go into a tunnel, he was going to see everyone, like the all the people from his life outside waving. And that this, but then they cut it because they were like, oh, it's it's too much going to seem like a suicide or something like that mm-hmm. but that's why I still think that he does actually kill himself mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe it is maybe it is supposed to be like a like he has to kill his ego or something like that like maybe he doesn't like literally kill himself um but I don't know maybe he yeah, does and then they're to- like oh we're taking down the rocket ship because this isn't happening and like he's like oh everyone's dancing in a circle and they're happy and I'm like happy with my wife and stuff mm-hmm. I think that's a valid interpretation too I mean I think everybody's interpretations are valid yeah. I was just interested to see like who thought what <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um I'm curious what people think of this in that progression we talked about I guess in the last round of movies of Italian cinema going from neorealist with bicycle thieves to something a little more stylized with La Ventura to this, which is like completely stylized to the point of it being surreal. What do people think of that progression in Italy over that? What would it be like uh, 15 years or so? Each one is a reaction to the other, you Mm -hmm. know, and this is a, a very good reaction to La Ventura where people are just like enough with the despair. I mean, right. there's an element of despair in the film, but it's it's heightened and 
it's more cerebral, I think, and it's more, you know, you're, you're more in your head. Yeah. And there's a sense of fun in that, which I, yeah, I you know, fun. I overlooked. I think when somebody had mentioned that it, it is a very fun movie and it's more enjoyable to watch than, you know, Mirror was, like you guys said. So as they get further and further away from the war, mm-hmm. it's just like stuff goes from being this like, OK, we're like super poor. I got to have my bike and like mm-hmm. that whole the drama of that to then. Yeah, the like just depression of La Ventura to this. And I think it's also getting to be more, you know, I think there's certainly universal, like absolutely universal themes in this movie about questioning yourself and self-doubt and criticism and love and relationships and all of that. But, you know, also ultimately it's about this one very specific person's struggle Mm -hmm. and so i think it's like also too going from this like oh we're this country that's just been like so devastated so war-torn such poverty like how can we think of our own struggles even though the bicycle thief is also like this very microcosm but it's like a microcosm of this bigger political issue whereas this is like a microcosm of like the human condition but not necessarily in my humble, uneducated opinion, very much about Italian cinema. It's not like a a meditation on like Italy as a country and like where mm-hmm. they're going. Yeah, I mean, I think that if, if a movie like this could have even come out in the 40s after the war, um, it would have just seemed frivolous and been off-putting to people. I think that was like what Bicycle Thieves and other neorealist movies were kind of getting at is like, we need to just like focus on people right now and it's not about like their inner struggles as much as just like trying to make it day to day in the world and that's enough and anything beyond that is like somehow in the face of people you know it's throwing something in the face of people but like I I find it interesting that it, it it didn't really take them that long to kind of work out of that it's only 15 years or so between bicycle thieves and this movie and it's just like a, a completely different world of of storytelling that they've opened up in that time. And I mean, Fellini started off doing essentially neorealist cinema, I think, in his first movies. And then he's developing into this very stylized, heightened thing. I find it very interesting that, that he had that path and then you know, kind of handed it off to other people. Like just the more freedom, the more like free, the more like... Um, economically comfortable you are, mm-hmm. the more like freedom you have to think about like these more personal, like individual right. um, concerns. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. I think is what you were basically saying. But um, I, I, yeah, I think it, the Italians do it pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I, I feel Italians like- do it better. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. So, Stephen, what were you saying? I was just saying, like, yeah, what Alicia's point is, it's like it's an upper middle class kind of problem to have. Like, you're making a movie and you have writer's block over it, but you're still going to be able to make a movie, you know, and that's hard when you boil it down to like that's that's pretty much the struggle of this 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 whole thing. And, you know, people were ready to hear it and they were ready to enjoy something like that in 1963. You know, what is the plot of La Dolce Vita? Because I don't know, and that seems like also such a great. <laughs> like everybody's <laughs> eyes roll when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> just like no, in I a just nutshell. can't remember. Yeah. No, I'm I just curious, don't remember. If we're looking at like the course of Italian cinema, that seems like it's a pretty critical movie. I'm assuming by the name of it that it's like a 
life is good, happy movie, but uh, I don't know. It's so. sort of ironically titled, I, I uh, think, okay. as I remember it. I, I, I saw that movie like 20 years ago. Don't remember that it's well. It's kind of about I the didn't... paparazzi in Italy. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Okay. But it's also about celebrity, celebrity. and like I know the and the Catholic Church hated that movie because they thought it was like trying to tell the story of a second Christ or something like that. Mm. Um, so I mean that's adding another layer to the movie that like I'm not sure I processed when I was 21 or something and, and watched it. But uh, I do remember the movie being more like realistically bound. You know, I don't think it had the surrealist touches in the way that this movie does. I think this is where. He really goes off in this direction. Does anybody remember that more than I do? I feel like I, I, feel like I do remember there being definitely some surrealist Was elements. There? I, I, I also haven't seen it in a long time, so I could be wrong too. So take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. But I do think it was a little bit about like trying to find meaning in a sort of empty world, which I mean, empty in the terms of like, not empty, but maybe like superficial worlds, mm -hmm. which would be like the Hollywood or the, you know, the movie industry, the celebrity worlds. But I, like I said, it's been a really long time since I've seen it and I don't remember it very well. <laughs> yeah. I, it's episodic, but it has sort of a plot and a protagonist. And whereas this film just meanders and it's sort of a reaction to that movie in a way where it's sort of deconstructed. It's, it's takes mm -hmm. certain elements of that. And then, um, kind of throws him in in the face of it, <laughs> it it's it's right. good um i prefer this film um mm. but i also i've i like la strada a lot by mm. fellini um but there's i mean there's so much yeah none i none i think have reached the this level of cereals before Right. Did he do Knights of Kiberia? Yes. That's Fellini, right? Yeah. yeah. That That is a movie I couldn't actually even finish. <laughs> I, I never saw that one. Um, people, I, Some people really love it, but yeah. I don't know. I, I remember Amarcord being very surreal, but, but very nostalgic in a different way than this movie is even of... Uh, Mm -hmm. Just being very much about like, oh man, when I was a kid in Italy, oh, it was great. <laughs> I want to um, remember being a kid in yeah. Italy. That sounds amazing. I did like his like the scenes with the kids stomping the wine grapes and then going to bed with the nannies and all of that. I I was like, oh, I feel so cozy watching this. I wish I was an Italian child. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. That was random. I just I kept thinking about, about germs and. Like, <laughs> so bad for them. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Are there other <laughs> Fellini films on the list? Are we going to watch any others? I kind of think La Strada is. Uh, let's check and see real quick. Um, Just curious if we're going to have anything. I think La Strada is. Like... It's La Strada. Yeah, La Strada was, was on the list uh, for directors in 1992. Uh, it placed at number four. Mm. And is La La Dolce Vita? Yeah. I thought La Dolce Vita no. was, but maybe it's no, not. It's in, not. Not in our list, at least. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's probably been on the longer list, but it wasn't yeah. on the top 10 or as a runner-up. Um, so I think it's just La Strada is the other one. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that one, so. it's it's. Uh, I remember it being very good. And also remade by Woody Allen as Sweet and Low Down. Oh. But, um, oh. Anyway. Hmm. Uh, so what are, what's everybody's favorite part of this film whether it's a scene or an element of the filmmaking or something what what do people like about this movie what what's something you like alicia how about you 
there's a lot I really like about this movie. So it's really hard for me to like settle on something, but I do like the, I do strangely like the harem scene. I just think it's like so revealing and like so true that like, I just, and, and also like so sad and um, pathetic and, and like, I feel so bad for everyone involved in that, in that whole fantasy sequence. I don't I'm feel bad like, for him, even, even when they're all yelling at him and stuff. Well, I don't feel bad for him as like, cause obviously he's the one benefiting and it's his fantasy and everything, but I feel bad for him that like, even in his fantasy, like, see, so just to come back to something that you said at the beginning of the episode about how he views his wife as just like this person that has to clean up his mess and all this stuff and see to me I think that's what kind of ends up taking him out of it is this like he starts to realize like how unhappy his wife probably is really and she is the one that's kind of stuck cleaning up his like mental messes and in the end she's the one that like has to live with him and she's kind of (laughs) she's kind of trying to like figure out if she can or can't do that and so I think that even in his fantasy he's like oh wow like I'm still making like this person that I do love like really unhappy so I feel bad for him in that he can't even be like fully (laughs) fully away from reality even in his like fantasy world Mm -hmm. but yeah I guess that that is the most interesting part of the movie to me Mia I thought that the harem scene was also like when I think back on this movie that's probably what I'll remember there was some smaller scenes that were really visually striking like when it's the camera pans really slowly around all the men in the taking the cure with the steam and everything and I thought that was just like such a great shot um and I weirdly liked all the stuff with the rocket I just thought it was like so weird that there was this like subplot of that but um but yeah the harem scene is probably what I'll remember just for its indulgence of him and then the sadness with the showgirl and having to go upstairs and all of that Mm -hmm. I question though I don't know if he does love his wife I don't know if he can love anyone so I I Put a pin in that and just a, a pin and a question mark there I think he cares about her and I think he likes her being his wife and doesn't want her to not be his wife but I I don't know if he can love honestly so I think he can love too much mm-hmm. you know there's degrees of it so he just loves too many. <laughs> he should have been in a poly, he should have like pursued polyamory. Yes. I actually was thinking thing. like, oh wow, I wonder like today how this would play out with our, you know, more broad-minded ideas about relationships yeah. and things. Stephen, what was your favorite element of the movie? Um, I, I liked a lot of the individual scenes. There was one at the very beginning of the movie that I liked when I think he was in the air and he was being tethered to the ground. I really liked that. It just really struck me. Um, but mm-hmm. I also liked, I think, the the dancing on the beach uh, with Sarah Gina. I really enjoyed that scene. It was just like very surreal mm-hmm. and, and fun. Laura? Well, the opening scene, like even before he was in the air, just the the cars and stuff, you know how they took that and made it into the everybody hurts. Barry, yeah. I always, I'm always struck by that scene. Um, yeah. I think there's one line in the film that I'll always remember where he's like, I have nothing to say, but I want to say it anyway. 
I just, <laughs> to me, that's, is what the film is. And I think creating, creating in general is, is, is a lot about that. Uh, I also, the, the, the older man, I forget his name. Um, the old guy that's kind of pathetic and cries and, um, the one who's been with him the longest and that scene in the hallway where yeah. he's, um, and he's on the floor and he's like, aren't you ashamed? And he's just like, I quit tomorrow. And of course he's not going to quit, but, um, it's just the idea of how he treats him and aging and in the, in that business. And mm-hmm. I thought it was very um, poignant, but I love the film. Okay. So there's so much of it that I love. I also like the beginning. I think of it as him being flown like a kite. (laughs) Uh, And and that image is like the the image that has stuck with me the most since I first saw the film in high school. And it's just like something that comes to mind from time to time. And so seeing that again for the first time in a long time was, was nice. I also am just a big fan of the score to this and, pretty much every Fellini film. And I also, I often put the music on around the house. Uh, <laughs> when you're cleaning. Uh, <laughs> it was our, it was actually what we played during our wedding reception, which like, you know, we had a COVID wedding. So it was like 10 of us eating basically. And I forget if it's your parents or my parents, but someone was just like, what the hell is this circus music you guys yeah. are playing? It sounded really good. Like when we were thinking about it, but then it was kind of this like weird thing of like, we're sitting outside in the dark with like string lights and eating. And it was like, do, 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 do. I don't know. <laughs> hey, it was for us, not them. Sure. Um, yeah. So has the movie, as far as you're concerned, stood the test of time? Do you think it still resonates today, Mia? <laughs> I I think it does. As much as I was kind of had my frustrations with it, I think it's obviously been like a really influential movie. And... So yes, I'm going to say test of time belongs on the list and I think it still resonates, <laughs> but maybe is also, I mean, I just think a lot of us said like, oh, it kind of dragged for me in port- parts or I was bored in, in parts of it. So maybe all of it doesn't resonate and I'm going to steal this from Jeremiah, but he said something, or, Never mind. I'm not going to, I'll just let you say it. I have no idea what you're talking oh, okay. about. Okay. You were, you were saying something about how this might be an example of oh, yeah, the yeah, things yeah. that it's... You're stealing my thing. That it's... I give you credit. <laughs> that the things that it has influenced might be better, quote unquote, whatever that means, than the original, which I think is something we've talked about before. I know Alicia has brought this up in past podcasts of like, just because it was the first time that something happened, is there a reason why we need to like still, you know, put those movies on high when like people who have come along might have done it better since then to paraphrase past Alicia. <laughs> um, so I think it resonates for the most part. Okay. Uh, well, since you referenced me, I will say that, yeah, I, I, I think it, it, it still stands the test of time just because it's it's about someone just struggling with creativity. And I think that that is always sort of like a thing that could be interesting to somebody. Um, I do think that, yeah, like like you were saying, there are movies that I think it, it clearly influenced that I think are maybe easier for me to watch now 
but that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate this movie for being maybe the template that a lot of people clearly stole from. Um, and I, 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 I never know like what the difference is between stood the test of time and does it resonate today? I never, I still don't think I've figured that out after doing this for like more than a dozen episodes, but, um, does it resonate today? I mean, I guess so. Cause it's stood the test of time. I don't know. Um, anyway, somebody else go now. <laughs> I think it, um, it stands that it kind of stands the test of time. Just because, like you said, the filmmaking in and of itself, you can watch it at any point and get something out of it. And it's something that you might have linked with some other movie that you've seen saying like, oh, wow, that's that's being used today and it, it's there now and I can watch it now. As far as the story itself goes, like I didn't really res- it didn't resonate with me personally, just because I've seen, you know, a thousand other movies where it's done in a better way with somebody who's in their mid forties and a white guy that's, you know, having problems. It's just like, it doesn't, I don't think it really resonated with me necessarily, but you know, who's, who's to say that, but that's what I'm going to say. Fair enough. Alicia. Um, yeah, I think I agree with Steven. I do think it stands the test of time in that it's like, um, it's definitely like visually striking and, and interesting and, um, and it's like a, it's an interesting look at, I guess, like what a person in that era, you know, what issues they were confronting in that era and in that industry, you know, look at those issues. But I do, I do not know if it resonates with everybody um, or I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think there's some stuff that's not still like entirely relevant today, but um, but I do think it it does tackle some it does tackle some very important questions too but i just think it it doesn't fully resonate for everybody so i don't know i don't know if that makes sense or not but that's kind of where i land okay and laura um i think it's a genius film and i think it resonates and even if some of the societal norms are different now it's still the idea of a man and his relationship to women you know, if you're cis, you know, gender, or just the, the need for um, people to be around you, to, to own them, to take advantage. Um, I think the film in and of itself is, is like an experience. And I think it's definitely um, stood the test of time and just, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't say enough good stuff about the film. So, uh, Laura, you sort of had a bonus question for us. Yeah, and just the idea that the film is about making of the film. And there's been a lot of films that do that. And I brought one up, CQ. As, and there's another one that I really like called Living in Oblivion from ni- in the 90s. Mm, um, yeah. I was wondering what everyone else thinks of those kinds of films, if you have a favorite. Well, I will name Day for Night by Truffaut which uh, it's also been a long time since I saw that, but I, I liked it a lot when I did. And then I'll just uh, call back again, Pain and Glory um, with Antonio Banderas and uh, directed by Pedro Amaldivar. If you haven't seen that, I feel like it was very underappreciated when it came out a couple of years ago. It's totally worth seeing. I remember seeing Hail Caesar. 
And I really enjoyed that movie. And, and I liked how it sort of broke down what filmmaking was about, even for someone who wasn't that experienced, one of the main characters in it and having to do scenes over again. And, you know, the whole thing with uh, George Clooney and like some of the musical numbers in there was just really entertaining to me. I'll say Singing in the Rain. Also, not a movie, but in Moulin Rouge, there's a, a play within a play. And I love that movie. So there's that. I also thought of Singing in the Rain, but then um, I decided that I would uh, go with Boogie mm. Nights instead. I know it's oh, not really nice. about like the legitimate film industry, but it is about a very, very prevalent um, part of our like society. And, and, and I think it's a really good movie. It really really always liked it. It's well done. It's a well done movie. I'm pretty sure I saw Boogie Nights. No, I mean, I know I saw it my senior year of high school and I think one of my teachers was there and I felt <gasps> so weird about oh, that. God. Oh, God. <laughs> that same thing happened with the full Monty, which I was, it was less weird, but still a little like, okay, why Just does this keep happening? Seeing your teachers out in public period yeah, is yeah. weird. Same, te- same teacher? Or I think it was teacher. the same teacher because she, she was like oh the, the sponsor of our film club, oh, which I was okay. in too. So so it made sense that she was going to these movies that were like the big, some of the big awards contenders <laughs> for that year. But I was still yeah. like, I don't need to know that you were at the same screening as me. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we also posed this question to our Facebook group and we got some really good answers there. For instance, Becky suggested Ed Wood, which I think is a great pick. Charlie suggested Persona. He said, Persona is about a few different things. And one of those things is movies and the relationship between the filmmaker and the audience. This is definitely my favorite. So good suggestion there. George also suggested Living in Oblivion. JPK also suggested Singing in the Rain and Hail Caesar. So we have some uh, like thinking going on amongst people on the podcast and people who listen to the podcast. Charlie also had an honorable mention, which he called a forgotten masterpiece, Matinee uh, by Joe Dante and starring John Goodman. And then in addition to Alicia's suggestion here, she also suggested The Player, which is a great pick as well. All right, so our next episode is Mia's third pick. The Godfather, part two. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, released in 1974, available to stream stream with a subscription to Paramount Plus or to rent on Amazon, Google, etc. That's it for this episode of Stereo Reactor Movie Club. We invite you to join us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Stereo Movie Club. You can also email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com. Or you can send us a voice message on our show page at anchor.fm slash Stereoactive Movie Club. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. Stereoactive Media.